1: I hear the word love rising in our time, a question of what love can mean as a practical public good and the only thing big enough to meet the hate we've come to treat so seriously in our midst. Love is the most reliable muscle of human transformation. And Rami Nashashibi and Lucas Johnson are young, visionary models and teachers of this. They're picking up the call to love that drove the civil rights generation of their parents and showing how it would pragmatically transmute justice, power, nonviolence, and community organizing now.
0: I've developed a course about community organizing as a spiritual practice because I think there was a lot in this idea of beginning with the notion that, you know, we all have a stake in this. You know, the returning citizens, the the brothers on the corners, the young... I mean, we, we... I think from the justice standpoint, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot in the context of language is this idea of calling out and calling up. For us, doing that at granular spaces like the corner store
2: make it real. I think that there's this place where... We have a responsibility to hold to the power of love that we know to be true and to not allow the world around us to deaden that in ourselves.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This conversation unfolded at the 2018 On Being gathering at the 1440 Multiversity among the Redwoods of Scotts Valley, California. Since this conversation, Lucas Johnson has joined on being as executive director of our civil conversations project. So we have an hour now with Rami Nashashibi and Lucas Johnson. So Rami is the founder and leader of the Inner City Muslim Action Network known as Iman. And it's the southwest side of Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah, to be precise, yeah. And so it is, I would say, a holistic approach to presence and healing in the inner city through the lens, through the approach of working with, initially when you started at a very young age, Muslim young people and families in crisis, or who were vulnerable in the inner city... um, and yes, for the Muslim community, but the broader Muslim community and all the communities they interact with every day. And Lucas, oh, I also want to say about Romney, I need to mention that he just got a MacArthur Genius Award. But I'm not, yeah. <laughs> but I, I am not a whit more impressed with him than I was before, because I always knew. Um, and um, Lucas is the international coordinator of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a century-old reconciliation and peace-building organization, which was created in response to the horrors of war in the early 20th century, founded in 1914, and uh, it is still in 48 countries. And that is actually how I met Lucas in the first place through Vincent Harding, one of our great Elders, who I was so fortunate to interview before he died, and, and he said to me, Lucas, is, Lucas embodies this for this coming generation. And I don't know if this is the right place to start, but here we are. Um, you know, thinking about elders and teachers and the, and the lineage. For both of you, uh, Lucas, you as a Christian, and, and Rami, you as a Muslim, both Martin Luther King Jr and Malcolm X are really important teachers. You both look to both of them a lot. And I see that happening. I see both of their voices rising up. And yet, I think in their lifetimes, they were seen as, they were seen, I don't know if, as if, you would, if they were contrasting figures, but they were separate paths. And I feel like for the two of you, This is also part of this wholeness that your generation is claiming. They were also both assassinated, right? And I feel like King gets quoted at me every ten minutes right now, right? Like right, every and that is so fascinating, and we forget that in his lifetime, and Rami, you talk a lot about when he came to Chicago, Uh he was not everybody's hero, right? And so there's something beautiful about this and interesting about how their voices, their lives, their teachings transcend the way they died, even the way they were held in this culture in their lifetime. I don't know, I just wonder, wonder if you would talk about that a little bit, about what the two of them mean to you and the two of them together.
2: Lucas? <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Baptist um, preacher should start.
2: <laughs> I feel really, wrong starting really, that because that is wrong. Really, All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I, I. Where do I begin? One of the benefits of learning from, from Vincent Harding and the other elders of the movement that he introduced and uh, and brought into my life. Uh, was that I got a chance to understand the complexity of brothers Martin and Malcolm um, from people who knew them, and I got a chance to appreciate the extent to which they wrestled, and I think that uh, we tend to look at those two in these kind of stagnant ways, in these kind of sort of unnuanced ways that don't do their lives and their Struggles and wrestling uh, justice, and uh, you know, this is the 50th year of, of, yeah. of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and the anniversary. And and I think about um, you know the fact that in '67 he had famously come out uh, in opposition to the Vietnam War, and I think about the fact that you know he delivered that speech on April 4th, right? And it was a year to the to the day that he was killed. Um. He was moving in this direction where he was trying to deal with these, with these structural issues of violence in our country. You know, the, the, the edifice which produces beggars, he, he, he said, in, both in, in his speech uh, beyond Vietnam and yeah, also You need speech. to be a
1: good Samaritan, yeah, but you uh, also need to ask.
2: Transform the Jericho Road so right. that men and women aren't constantly beaten and robbed as they make their way along life's journey to, to change the edifice that produces beggars is what he called us to. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because I think that Brother Malcolm in some ways was very much also engaged in that edifice-changing work. You know, he was traveling to the United Nations trying to get other states to hold the United States accountable to its treatment of its black citizens. And he understood that there was a structural thing that needed to be dealt with. And so both were committed to this work of personal transformation but they also knew that there was this structural change at work that that was necessary and i, I, I yeah they've mm-hmm. both been profoundly important to my life mm-hmm.
0: yeah you know we were talking earlier when we ran into each other about some of the stuff that i've been thinking about recently i mean both the legacy of both continue to really animate so much of who i am and what i'm grateful for and the edifice upon which we do all our work and um, has been a non-stop engagement. I mean, um, the legacy of the Nation of Islam, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm, that's Imam Jamil Al-Amin, SNCC, and all of that woke me up as a as a kid. I mean, kind of it's what thrust me into an awareness of who I was as a, as a child of Palestinian refugees connected my struggle, the black struggle connected my struggle to Brown struggle, particularly in those younger years, uh, fueled by the fire, you know, and, and couldn't get enough of it and looked for it and was, you know, and I think at that point, quite frankly, Martin Luther King wasn't relevant to me. I, I didn't have a way to connect, uh, to that legacy, uh, as much. I mean, I, as a, as a Muslim, I saw the, the transcendent global connectivity that was just awe-inspiring for me that came out of the movement uh, that helped to incubate Malcolm. Um, and that, which,
1: which he was so motivated, mm, animated by at the end of his life, absolutely. that
0: global. The global peace, the ability to kind of see struggles in others, the, the ways in which I think that still, till today, are really underappreciated about the larger Muslim tradition in the United States. and. You know, Malcolm and that legacy was kind of a portal through which, in many ways, it began to symbolize the utter defiance of, no, we are human beings and we are full human beings. We're spiritually connected to a global history. And uh, that was powerful. But I think what, what I've, as I evolved in the work, both the legacy of King and then another kind of dimension of Malcolm for me began to intersect in a very powerful way. A part of Malcolm that till today I think people again don't really appreciate the, the person who was constantly struggling constantly evolving the very human Malcolm you know the, the, you know we are close to his, his daughters and, and Ilyasa is one of them and when Ilyasa comes to our event and smiles you see the smile of Malcolm it was, it's not you know Malcolm's often made out to be this mad militant and you know this was a person who had an extraordinary humor had an extraordinary humanity and was again constantly evolving, um, mm-hmm. taking extraordinary risks in his own spiritual uh, exploration. And that is part of the king legacy that I find the most fascinating that, again, I think we don't hear about. I just finished uh, Where Do We Go From Here, which was that last book he wrote. And again, like, like Beyond Vietnam, it is filled with a king who is wrestling with his own legacy and how it was being uh, captured even in 1960. I mean, King was problematizing, I have a dream, before he died. And he was saying, listen, you know, what we're asking for now, we begin, to, it's, it's a harder sacrifice, and we don't hear as many people coming out into the streets. We're asking for equity. He's talking about, you know, basically a living wage. He was talking about econo- you know, a fundamental radical restructuring of the economic system in the United States about basic equity. But, but I also found fascinating. One of the moments in that book that I find fascinating was a, a chapter called Black Power. And it's King saying, I don't subscribe completely to, you know, the, the totality of what black power is expressing. But in this entire chapter, he spends a lot of time trying to explain the urgency of black power to the, to the liberal white reader. And I again, I found it a moment that uh, both, in, for me, it's king wrestling. I acknowledge all of the claims of black power. I feel it. I see it. I've experienced it. But I'm still calling us to something greater as a nation, as a people, and a world. And that resonates really profoundly with me.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Ramina Shashibi and Lucas Johnson. to the two of you about language that we need, and I think people in this room by and large love, but which also has become problematic and simplified, words like peace and justice. Again, you know, I feel like Rami, like what you're doing with Iman, you're so careful to use different language and to, to look at things as a whole, not to be doing justice separate from corner stores and whether people are hearing great music and you know like you talk about corner stores as places of hope and possibility and the work you have with the formerly incarcerated you call them returning citizens and it's not just language you use it's it's a different way to treat the project of healing the inner city and it's not problem focused it's wellness focused, it's wholeness focused. I feel like so much when we talk about justice even the greatest justice efforts can actually not touch that sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. You know I think community organizing language has really informed a lot of the way I think of, I think about my own spiritual tradition and the work and I, I've kind of developed a course about community organizing as a spiritual practice because I think there was a lot in this idea of beginning with the notion that, you know, we all have a stake in this. You know, the returning citizens, the the brothers on the corners, the young, I mean, we we have to see ourselves as collectively invested in issues that we're dealing with. Um, If you don't begin to understand uh, the connectivity between you know, the immigrant uh, refugee who's coming to the inner city and opening up a corner store and then contributing to a lot of the dynamics in the inner city neighborhood with the challenges that made that neighborhood what it was, then you're just not looking at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think from the justice standpoint, you know, one of the, the things that we think about a lot in the context of language is this idea of calling out and calling up for us, doing that at granular spaces like the corner store, make it real, make it, I think, a little more relevant than maybe, uh, and we all need that, and we all need, I yeah. think, to and be in And you live in, in the neighborhood, too. We've been there for many years. It's not uh, a place you years. visit. You're, yeah. you're, you're
1: part of the community. It's yeah. your corner store. Yeah. I mean, Lucas, I feel... Um, one of your mentors across time and space is A.J. Must, who founded I4, mm-hmm. and he talked about a revolutionary pacifism. And you know, I think those words just don't land now. But but what he, what you said what that meant was not about neutrality while surrounded by injustice, but about finding the courage to respond in love. But you, I mean, you've even talked. Sometimes you will refer to what we call the civil rights movement. I even think you want us to refresh that, our imagination about that language.
2: Right. I mean, that, that comes from, from Vincent Harding. He, he would always take issue with people referring to the civil rights movement as such and, and find that that was a rather lazy description uh, for what he and many of, of, uh, of his peers risked their lives for. Uh, he, he would prefer to talk about either use the expression of uh, the black-led freedom struggle or uh, sometimes the Southern Freedom Struggle or the Southern Freedom Movement. Uh, but he would want us to, to reframe that. But but yeah, I mean, I, I, I find that um, there's a lot of our language. I mean, the language of nonviolence becomes, I think, very problematic uh, today in, in communities that are, um, you know, I, I think these days a lot of people relate to the language on, of nonviolence as another way of telling them how they need to respond to their oppression right. and to the difficulty right. in, in, in their midst. And, and I think that, that that does revolutionary pacifism a disservice, right? Because it was far more than, than just telling you know, oppressed people that they need to temper their tone or, or address the way that they're speaking uh, or calling out the injustices that they're surrounded by.
1: Yeah, and I think this question of... We live in this moment of uh, where fear is rampant, and anger is rampant on many sides, and a lot of it is justified, right? I mean, you can't argue with you can you can argue. Obviously, we could all argue with some of it and not argue with others. But I think how do you how do the two of you think about this tension, which I think you take on as a creative tension of nonviolence. And the righteousness of, of anger and grief, how would this tradition in its depths that you know, how does it meet this human quandary, this complexity?
2: I think about um, the moment when, when Mike Brown's uh, father was, or his stepfather, when, they, when, when the verdict came of the acquittal of the officer that that killed his son. I think that, if I, I remember this correctly, he screamed, "You know, burn it down. And I think about the criticism that he received. And I think about the fact that, to me, if it were my son, the destruction of property seems to me like a far more human response than to sit on the sidelines and tell people to be peaceful and, and use nonviolence. And and what I'm speaking to is not that I think that that's a good thing, but I'm trying to speak to, to this fact that I don't feel like we wrestle enough with the real grief and anger that, that is natural to feel in the face of such injustice. Mm-hmm. Now, I think on the other side, the tension for me is accepting this fact that, frankly, you know, when I think about the generations of, of dehumanization and, and suffering that my people have endured— how can there be justice for what's happened, right? In, in the sense that we, we, we tend to look for it. Um, and so that's where my spiritual practice comes in, where I have to find another way of accepting and, and dealing with that grief. Uh, you know, one of the biggest, I think, challenges with King's notion of nonviolence is this idea that unmerited suffering can be redemptive. And I think that's a very, very difficult thing.
1: I think you've said that in, in your work with International Fellowship of Reconciliation, that's something that people struggle with. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I think that our spiritual traditions give us resources for, for dealing with that. But it's, it's a hard thing to wrestle with. It's a hard thing to accept uh, and, and to believe. And I feel like that is, that's a part of the tension of the spiritual discipline of nonviolence. Um, but I feel like it's far too often neglected and people don't really live with that tension, which means that they're not really confronting the anger, which means that they're not really taking themselves to that empathic experience of other people's pain. Mm.
0: And I, and I also think about that kind of spiritual tension between justice. Um, and in our tradition, it's a justice and mercy, right? right?
1: Which and, is such a good word. We need to use that word more.
0: Um, and, and you know, we're taught that you never pray for justice. Never pray for justice. Because as much as you want justice, you pray for mercy. In other words, you never pray for God to be just with you. Because you recognize that, you know, we all got issues. <laughs> you know, all of our communities have issues. And when you start on disentangling the layers of oppression that we begin to find that we are oppressors of one another. We are oppressors of ourselves. In fact, there are many verses in the Quranic text that say, you know, I did not oppress them. In fact, they oppressed their own selves. They oppressed their own souls. And I think about that spiritual notion up against those moments though. You were, what you were saying about living those moments we were talking about. I just came from Jerusalem and, um, I'm coming out of Aqsa, right outside of the compound, the the sacred compound. There's a historic African-Palestinian community, and some of them know me. They said, Rami, you got to come to dinner with us tonight. And probably 30 minutes into their dinner, the Israeli soldiers kind of raid the compound, Mm -hmm. and their son is grabbed along with five other kids. The youngest is 10 years old, and, and now I'm following a father who gets up and runs, and of course I'm running with him. And I was just, You know, I was there and then it's in those moments where conversations about justice and mercy, you know, it's, you know, it's rubber meet the road kind of moment. And it's, um, yeah, it's how do you still look at the, the soldier? And there was one moment I looked at the soldier. I looked at one of them and I knew it was fear. In his eyes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, they're kids mostly. Because I mean, the, the
0: soldiers are 18, 19 year old Israeli kids looking at a group of young Palestinian kids who have been brought up in, in occupation who no longer fear them, right? And the irrationality of a guy armed with the Uzi some machine gun looking at, you know, eight and nine, 10, 11 year olds as potential threats and being in that moment, I could strangely enough identify with the impossible position that that soldier was in. I don't think I would have as a young 10-year-old Palestinian kid, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I think part of the work that's shaped me over the last you know, several decades in Chicago have given me a type of privilege to think about mercy and justice in a way that maybe others that are living the raw brutality of oppression every single day don't have.
1: a short break, more with Rami Nashashibi and Lucas Johnson. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed, wherever you find your podcasts. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The
0: Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Congratulations to the 2019 Templeton Prize winner, Brazilian physicist Marcelo Gleiser. Learn more about his inspiring work bridging science, philosophy, and spirituality at templetonprize.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Reverend Lucas Johnson and Rami Nashashibi. They are two pragmatic young visionaries who model community organizing as a spiritual practice and love as a practical public good. A child of a military family, Lucas was global coordinator of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was founded in 1914 and is still active in over 40 countries. He's recently become the first executive director of On Being's Civil Conversations Project. Rami, a MacArthur Genius Fellow, created and leads Iman, the inner-city Muslim action network, a force for healing on the south side of Chicago, where he also lives with his family. We spoke at the 2018 On Being Gathering. This dynamic, and of course, it's extremely intense in Jerusalem and in many places in the world where you work, Lucas, but it's here now, too, that there's all this fear all around. And it's like our different fears are pitted against each other. And these different kinds of fear from living in different parts of the country, right? what's happening with the economy, what's happening with them. You know, we can talk about all these layers, immigration policy. I wonder what wisdom you have about like the spiritual discipline of, you know, being a citizen in this moment. And I think part of it is that those of us who do have the privilege to be standing on the solid ground, to not be immediately endangered, like what is the responsibility for us in, in a moment like this where so many people really feel endangered, and the perception of being endangered is as powerful in our brains as the actual. So, so we have to take that seriously. Where do you go with that?
2: So I'm not sure if I have wisdom at the end of this story, but I'm remi- something about that description reminded me of one of my earliest times um, being uh, racially profiled or stopped by the police. And I was... Um, well, actually, it's not one of my earliest times. It's a bit... This is maybe three times in. Yeah. I, was a, I was a sophomore in college, and I went to school at a predominantly white uh, private school, and um, uh, I was walking around talking. Yeah. I was in the Baptist Student Union at the time, and I was walking with a, a young white woman who was also in the BSU, and we were walking around campus, and we were talking about probably Jesus. <laughs> you know the late night Jesus conversation late night Jesus I mean it's what you did it's what you did you know and uh, we're, we're having this conversation and um, we're walking around campus and all of a sudden a, a, a police car pulls up and 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 the lights are shining and and the officer gets out of the car and he, and he shines a flashlight in, in my eye, and I don't know if any of you've you ever had that experience, but you can't see anything, right? So it's a very, it's already like just a very disorienting experience because if they're shining that light in your eye, you can't you just hear the voices. And so the officer says, "Ma'am, are you okay?" And uh, my friend says, uh, "Yeah, I, I, I'm fine. We're just walking around, you know." Uh, and then they look at me and say, are, well, I'm assuming they're looking at me at this point, uh, since I can't see still. They say, uh, uh, are you a student here? And I say, uh, yes, I am. And then I, I did, I, I played a trick that I learned to do as a kid, because I, at the time, I was on student government, and so I had met some of the police officers at the, and uh, the campus, and so I start to call names. I start to say, officer such and such, is that you? And, you know, the flashlight begins to lower and uh, I think I have to show my, my campus ID, and then they, then they go away. The real difficulty of that moment was the next day when I tried to tell some of my friends who were white about that experience. And I, I'm, try, I'm, I'm recounting, and I remember like, just shaking as I'm, as I'm talking about it. And my friends say, yeah, but come on, I mean, if someone was going to be on campus that didn't belong, they would probably be black, (laughs) right? These were my friends, right? So I thought. And I knew that in that moment, um, because I believe they cared about me. I mean, I believe that in order to say that to me, they had to suppress something within them using the most ridiculous logic, right, the biggest threats to my my, I wanna say my girlfriend, she wasn't my girlfriend, but the, mm-hmm. my friend who was a girl, uh, the biggest threats to, hers, to her safety were not coming from outside the campus, right? Uh, I mean, needless to say, those friendships were severed at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Because how can we be friends when I know that you would be comfortable with my dehumanization? right? But in order for us to find our way back, we had to continue to, to talk To deconstruct the lie, I couldn't do it immediately. It took maybe a year (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, for us to be able to have that conversation, but in time we could, and I'm grateful for that. So I don't know if there's any wisdom to be learned from that, but but I think it's it's a challenge, something that I wrestle with in each situation that I'm confronted with. Like, how do I? Because the fear doesn't show up in the same way, right? And, and, right. and it, it, and it looks, often
1: doesn't show up as fear, right? It, well, it doesn't, doesn't present as itself exactly. as fear. It exactly. presents itself as anger.
2: Yeah. So you have to, one is you have to be in the place where you can, you can see. And sometimes we're not. I think we have to admit that with ourselves. Sometimes we're not in that space. And it, and it takes sometimes a privilege, a, a, a distance, and it takes a certain set of ingredient sometimes for us to arrive at the place where we can see that fear. But it's also something that we can practice. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And we had to sort of have different types of conversations that weren't about that moment, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In order for us to come back to some semblance of a relationship. Mm -hmm. But it also helped that we were on the same campus, we would keep seeing each other over and Mm -hmm. over again. So... It wasn't as easy for us to retreat to our silos and avoid each other. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, I think I like the
0: idea that you were just talking about, this idea of experiential divides. And when you think about what you just said, you were on the same campus. I think Brian Stevenson was once asked, okay, what, what's, what's part of the solution? And, and he, he said, look, there's, he talked about what I, what I heard as the power in proximity, right? That, that try to continue to agitate yourself to be proximate to the pain. Right. I, you know, I, last summer, I, I leave my house real quickly on an errand to go fill my wife's van up with gas. And I'm, I'm running and she's running and, and, I'm, and I go to the gas station, the closest one. And there's a, two young black kids, probably 13, 14. One has his shirt off and two cars are there, two cop cars are there. So I'm filling my gas. I'm looking at this. I'm like, OK. And then another cop car shows up. Then three, four more come up. Then a white shirt comes up. And I say, oh, man. So I just like, I say, you know, I can't sit there filming. So I go walk up. And I'm just sitting there looking at them. And, and I'm talking to these young brothers. I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? He's like, you know, no, you know, they said we were walking here, blah, blah, blah. Again, no, the kid has, he's in shorts. It's in summer. He has no shirt. You can see what he has on. The other kid is sitting there watching this. And there's like, you know, 15, 17 cops coming around. And finally, one, one cop comes by me and says, you know, what's, what's the problem? I said, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> uh, like, right. you know, we're in Chicago. We're in the district that Laquan got shot. I'm going to sit and watch to make sure this doesn't have to unnecessarily escalate, officer. I don't see a threat here, right? Um, but the fact that we can, you know, cars could just zoom by that and normalize that type of tension and experience, I think, you know, I've experienced in a much lighter version of being thrown on a cop car, being put in, arrested for disorderly conduct in the 8th District a while ago. And and what it meant, the extraordinary dehumanizing and enraging experience you have when officers are directly lying about their encounter uh, that they had with you in a court of law and then being found guilty. Um, but I do think in those moments, Crystal, I think your original mm-hmm. question in my mind, mm-hmm. I, I'm hearing about... The, the reality of the experience. How do you put yourself more proximate proximity to the pain? And I think on the flip side, how do those of us who have proximity to the pain don't get jaded and, and succumb to despair mm-hmm. and cynicism about the possibility of reconciliation? And again, I think there are spiritual techniques and tools for me, again, in the Muslim tradition anyway, despair is just so antithetical. Uh, in fact, the word despair, balesa, uh, is the root word of to despair, and it's etymologically directly connected to the word iblis, which is Satan. So the idea of darkness and despair and succumbing to the inability to constantly see. And, and again, uh, Muslim tradition is filled with stories that you have to present to Muslims, even in the context of something that seems as intractable as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, of people who were at each other's necks during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, people who killed his family members, people who uh, slaughtered innocents, but found a way to reconcile mm. as brothers and sisters. Mm. Uh, and so it might occasionally sound Pollyannish in terms of where you're coming from, but It's an integral part of the tradition. Reconciliation is a part of the tradition. And if you're sincere and genuine about it, you have to strive towards it still and not despair that you have gotten to a point where it's impossible.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Ramina Shashibi and Lucas Johnson. I want to end talking about love. Actually, I I recently was reading King's speech in 1967, uh, where he said, darkness cannot put out darkness, only light can do that. And I say to you, I have also decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today, nor today. And then he says, I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love, and I have seen too much hate I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens' counselors to want to hate myself. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I wonder, just in the last few minutes, I feel like figuring out what strong, demanding love is in public is also our work. I feel we, culturally, we have named hate in our midst, right? We've named it. We call it out. We've created legal categories around it. And that creates a paradoxical, I don't think just an opening and an invitation, but a responsibility to interrogate love in the same way, if he's right, that it's the only thing big enough to drive out hate. And I think we actually all know this, right? Like, I can't prove it politically or scientifically. It's true. We know it. But still, what is this strong, demanding love? What are its qualities? And how do we start to make it happen? What if the, I f- and I feel like the two of you are living this. So, so what have you learned about this?
2: As the Muslim, I feel like it's your turn to speak. Oh, my it. <laughs> No, no, no,
0: no. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, I, I guess I, I would think about it in two ways and, and try to be short with it. You know, one, to maybe continue with King and continue with those last words of King. Um, And I I sent this to all our organizers because we do these organizing trainings and everyone always struggles in our organizing training, especially in spiritual communities with the word power. Right. And we talk about organizers need to build unapologetic power. And, you know, you cannot conflate power with, you know, power corrupts and uh, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Why do we want power? We're spiritual people. No, you need power. Power, the ability to act, to, to get things done. And what's so brilliant in that last text is King positions one of the biggest diametric kind of uh, dichotomous misunderstandings is juxtaposing love against power. And what he was saying is like, our love needs to drive us to build power, mm-hmm. to build the ability, the capacity to move an agenda that is predicated on a better vision of the world. So I think in part, you know, uh, that idea of expressing, because, you know, in that same text he talks about, you know, love without power being, you know, Well, and the, but look, what we do culturally,
1: like, we think, we know hate is powerful. Like, mm-hmm. we honor the power of hate. Right. But... We don't think of love as, we, we don't put those two things together as yeah. powerful, although in our lives we know it's powerful.
0: Yeah, and I think he talks about it very practically in that kind of context of really what it means to build real agendas, coalitions, and alliances to sustain, you know, movements. Um, and, I, and I, so I think there is that, and I think our, you know, love in public Is about do we love those who are directly affected, including ourselves, enough to make the type of sacrifices to build collective power to change those realities that are on the ground? I think that's a really important question for all of us around not just the more, I think, easier issues to talk about, but some of the more complicated set of social issues that really implicate all of us on some level or the other. And I think that also then links to the other aspect for me about love, which is the spiritual, more aspirational, I think, harder to achieve notion of love, which again, in, in uh, I think about a hadith, a, a prophetic saying that says, you know, Be distant from the dunya, if you will, the worldly. Don't be so caught up in this world. Have genuine spiritual practices that are authentically aligned with the reality and understanding that we are all going to meet our creator, and that this world is very temporary, and that if you are genuinely rooted in that understanding that you will obtain the love of the divine, and that if you are also, the second part of that. Is And be distant from just trying to keep up with the possessions of the people. In other words, if you are genuinely, if your, your existence is not simply about material uh, competition with others and that if you can, what does that look like in our context of our modern reality to be able to say that to, you know, we're not in it just for a vote. We're not just in it for a particular uh, a benefit, that genuine commitment to people. Uh, if you are distant from simply aspiring towards the possessions of people, you will obtain the love of the people. And I think, you know, we have this one saying every morning we come and we got we these young 18 to 25 year olds and returning citizens. We all gather and it's around 35 of us. And I, we always say, look, we only want one thing from you. One thing. And they all know this right now. And they said, you know, your success in this life and your spiritual success as a person that aspires towards something greater. And, you know, the context of love, mm. it is profound to see people, we talk a lot among guys who are really been jaded by this toxic masculinity, to be able to say, I love you, you know? What's well, really, you know, the other day I was at the bank and one of those young brothers saw me as I was coming out, we were messing around with them, and I was like, you know, going make it rain, Rami, make it rain, we're going out in outside the bank. And then, and then, this is a kid that I knew from the neighborhood for many years. With nothing but kind of that just hard look, he looked to me. You know, looked at me as I was leaving out. I said, "Man, I love you, man." And I looked there. and said, "Wow, I've never, heard, I never thought I heard you say that." He said, "I know, man." I said, <laughs> 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 and, "And for me, that was just like that moment. That wow, you know, and and the guys." I walk in and like, man, we, we saying I love you all the time now around here, right? I can say that and I mean it, you know? And I, and I think, um, as corny as that might sound sometimes, it, it's powerful to see that the force that animates work for me is believed, that love is genuine, that it's authentic and it's part of what drives, uh, I think, a sense of realness in terms of connection
1: you know, for me. Mm-hmm.
2: So um I shouldn't have asked you to go first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I uh I'm reminded of this story. So, you know, within the fellowship of reconciliation, there's been this um you know, so you you referenced it earlier that the, the language of nonviolence wasn't there. So that uh, you know it started as this movement of conscientious objectors of people who who said that you know our faith will not allow us to kill another person. We can't participate in war. You know, but they they went on to try to figure out how what that looked like, and they they talked about love and action. And so when you know leaders like early leaders of FOR. You know, went to India and, and met Gandhi and were trying to experiment with these Gandhian tactics in the, in the racial justice struggle in the United States. And so there was this debate that happened within the organization around 1946, before the the journey of reconciliation, the first of the Freedom Rides. And the debate was whether or not by using these tactics, by taking an integrated bus south, whether or not doing that would provoke the southerners to violence and therefore, you know, inviting the southerners to, to, to moral injury, right? In other, in other words, was it true to our convictions if we did something that was provocative um, in that sense? And, and the answer from uh, A.J. Musty and Bayard Rustin and others was, no, what we're doing is we're inviting the southerners to a response the segregationist to a response, and we're holding a mirror to them, and that is the most loving thing you can do, right? To confront people with the the image of of who they've become as they've committed these acts of violence. And it was oriented towards wanting people to be able to be the, the people that they believe themselves to be, right? and that's that's an incredibly loving thing you know and i think for me one of the the difficult things because we have a culture that's so oriented towards punishment and, and and punitive measures and we want to punish people for what they've done um we don't talk about the fact that none of us were born with this desire to be evil right none of us were Maybe that's a theological claim that we might have to discuss, but I don't believe that, you know? And I think that um, the power of love to... And it is both an internal... You know, another moment for A.J. Musty was, you know, he was demonstrating on a, on a picket line, and a reporter came up to him and said, Mr. Musty, do you believe that your demonstrating will change the country? And he responded by saying, uh, young man, I'm demonstrating so that my country doesn't change me. And so I think that there's this, this place where we have a responsibility to hold to, to the power of love that we know to be true and to not allow the world around us to deaden that in ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's really tempting. And not allowing that to die in ourselves is a part of what enables us to engage others in that way. But it's a, it's a struggle.
1: That's where I feel, though, that you know, maybe this is kind of my thing, like the power of the words we use, and to call these things love. If people feel like, oh, so do I have to become an activist? That's problematic. But am I a lover? Right? Do I love the world? Do I love my children? Do I, do I, do I know that other people love their children and what I want for mine children? Right? So to me, that feels powerful. I wonder if um, Lucas... You, there's, here's, this is something you said about Vincent Harding. And I wondered if maybe to end it, I'm just, you, you guys are so great. And what I'm so excited about is that you're out there doing what you're doing and everybody in here is doing what they're doing and we're all in conversation. This is, this is a work in progress that we're experiencing and participating in. So can you read it? Yeah. It's faint.
2: Wait, this is... You, you said this. This is what I wrote about yeah. Vincent Yeah, you can.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, at first, I thought you were saying no, that. No, no, um, you wrote it. That but he wrote you it. You can
1: also say it in your own current yeah, no, words, if I you'd mean, like. No, I mean,
2: no. This was true of, of Vincent Harding, who uh, was a dear mentor and friend and who I miss. Um, he could see us, each of us whom he encountered. He did not see the caricatures of ourselves, nor what our ideological commitments had made us or our fear had tricked us into becoming. He could see in us who we were destined to be, more fully human. And he used his gift of sight to help us see ourselves and each other.
1: Lucas Johnson, Rami Nasha Shibi, thank you. <laughs> Reverend Lucas Johnson is executive director of On Being's Civil Conversations Project. Until December 2018, he was global coordinator of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation. Rami Nashashibi is founder and executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago and a 2017 MacArthur Fellow. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lynn,
2: Profit Idowu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee,
1: Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon,
2: Zach Rose, and Siri
1: Grassley. Special thanks this week to the wonderful 1440 Multiversity team, Especially Susan Freddie, Susan Coles, Janice Smith, Michelle McNamara, Steve Seabach, Avery Lauren, Joshua Green, and David Dunning. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
2: On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.